Hello and welcome back to Creative Health Podcast, where stories and information are shared about the health and well-being benefits of engaging in and experiencing creativity with me, Laura Bailey. In this episode, I chat with Sedi Frederick. Sedi has held senior leadership positions across the private and public sectors for over 30 years and is currently chair of NHS Kent and Medway. He is also chair of the Health and Europe Centre, independent chair of NHS London's Health Equity Partnership Group and board member of Sage Homes. He's been named on four occasions as one of Britain's 100 most influential black people. Sedi is an extraordinary person who genuinely cares about making a difference to people's lives. He talked about his motivation stemming from his parents, about his career path in health and social care, and about allowing for experimenting and innovation to create change. He also talked passionately about his own love of music. He was an absolute delight to talk to. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Good morning, Sedi. Welcome to Creative Health Podcast. How are you today? I'm well, Laura, and absolutely delighted to spend this time with you and looking forward to a really good conversation. Oh, thank you so much. So you've had a long career in health and you've worked in the public sector, not-for-profit, private sectors. You've worked with housing associations, charities supporting people with disabilities and health issues. You've delivered children and young people services, old people services, and many board positions, and now you're leading the Kent and Medway Integrated Care System. Why did you want to work in healthcare? What did young Sedi think when he was younger about his future career path? I think it's fair to say that my future career path was actually set out for me before I was even born. Uh, My parents came to London Uh, from Grenada, which is a small island in the Caribbean, in 1955. And whilst perhaps now it may sound to many to be quite quaint and twee, they came to serve and they came to make a contribution and they came to, to give. And I think being born in that environment with those values, I was only ever going to work in the public sector. Right. As you said in the introduction, my career has taken all sorts of different turns, but generally speaking, apart from some work as a consultant, my work has totally been in the service of others. So that's where my, I guess, my personal drive comes from. And I I hope as I reach what might be described as the autumn of my career, uh, I, I can look back and think, yes, I've, I've made a contribution. Yes. And did your parents work in the public sector? My mother worked in social care. Right. And the only job she could get was as, I guess, what is now described as a healthcare assistant or a carer working in a local authority run home for older people. But back then, the homes were not the homely environments that we see and have now. It was a huge institution. Mm. So she worked in that role for many years and then gradually worked her way up 
the organizational hierarchy and when her local authority started building smaller homes she became a manager of a care home for older people interestingly my father couldn't get a job in the public sector so he ended up working for what was then called it may still will be called cable and wireless oh yes and then went on to become an engineer working for a small company in south london so i guess Certainly on my mother's side, she worked for 35 years for a London council. So you had that influence from a really young age. And did she used to talk about her work? Well, she did more than talk about it, Laura. I I used to push the trolleys around in the care home. I had a trolley on which I would carry newspapers, chocolate bars and sweets and would sell those to the residents. And then as a series of holiday jobs growing up, I worked in a number of hospitals, doing everything from being a kitchen porter to working in offices to being a general porter on ward. So I guess I was always drawn to working in kind of health and social care. You had that first-hand experience of how important caring for people is. So tell us about some of the roles that you've enjoyed the most over your career and why. When I left what was then called a polytechnic, way, way, way back, I went to work in uh, housing. I went to work for a local authority in London and I was there for 14 years and again was able to work my way up the organisational hierarchy to a very senior role. But then after 14 years, I left to become chief executive of what used to be called a black and minority ethnic BME housing association. I was there for almost five years and then decided to transition into social care. And I successfully applied to become chief executive of what was then a small provider organization based in North London, supporting people with learning disabilities, autism, and mental health problems. I was there for a total of 12 years. And I think it's fair to say that the 12 years I was running that organization were probably the most challenging, but also educational and enjoyable of my entire career. When you work for an organization or when you have the the honor, the privilege of leading an organization that is completely, totally and utterly values based, it changes you as a human being. The organization was set up along with many in right across the country at that time because there was a drive to close long-stay institutions. Right. And people who, with learning disabilities, many of whom should never have been in those institutions, were moved out of those institutions, repatriated to the boroughs from where they came, and organizations like mine were set up to support them in the community. And when you are part of an organization that is progressive, whose staff are totally committed to supporting people to have the best life they possibly can it's like nothing else yes really powerful and humbling I'd imagine as well well very much so because the people who had been placed some might say incarcerated but I would say placed in long institutions had no life so our staff were committed to giving people supporting people to have the best life they possibly could and still do And in that regard, 
whether that be around relationships, friendships, employment, experiences. We were supporting people to do things that many people thought, including their families, they could never do. And I think the highlight was when two of the people that we supported uh, met in the care home, formed a relationship and got married. And I was pleased to be invited to the wedding. And I remember talking to the mother of one of the people, I think it was the bride, who was absolutely in pieces Mm. because she said that she's never thought she'd see her daughter walk down the aisle. Oh, that's amazing. When you are part of that, it is literally life-changing. Yeah, and just to be clear, that's what I meant by powerful, not having the power, but actually, you know, it being powerful on everybody's emotions and seeing the transformation in people. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you've had lots of what I'm going to call additional roles. I'm not sure if that's the right way to describe them in supporting organizations and charities on boards as a board member and that kind of thing. And I read that along with being named on four occasions as one of Britain's 100 most influential black people, you've also been described as an unsung hero of the third sector who has changed as many lives in his life outside of work as he has in his day job. That's incredible, Sadi. I mean, what an accolade. Why do you think people say that about you? What is it about you that drives you to do more and do more outside of the job that you get paid for? I mentioned earlier my parents' journey. Um, I could talk about my parents probably for the whole of this podcast, but they were extraordinarily influential on me, my sister, and my brother, without a doubt. And my father was, unfortunately, he's passed now, but he was what I described as a Sunday afternoon philosopher. So he worked really, really hard. But on a Sunday, we were allowed into the front room. He would play his music, and I'll talk about that a bit later, perhaps. Mm. And he would have a scotch. He didn't drink during the week, but on Sunday afternoons, he'd have a scotch. And he'd sit back, and he would just regale us with his thoughts. One of the things he said, which I didn't understand at the time, but as I've got older, I certainly do understand, is that he said, in life, you're measured by what you leave behind. Now, that, I guess, for me, is really what I'm about. And it's this word legacy. Mm. It's about, have you made a contribution? And that's not just in terms of a nine to five or a vocation, but on a day-to-day basis. And I, I don't mean to sound uh, pious or whatever, but it is that sense of making a contribution. And I try to do that, not just in terms of my day job, but other things that I do. So I, I may not look it these days, but back in the old days, I was a bit of a sportsman. I heard about this. Yeah. I do want to ask you about that. Okay. and. Um, We have two sons, my wife and I have two sons who were also very good, in our case, basketball players. That was our collective uh, sport. And when I stopped playing basketball, I started coaching. And when you're able to coach young people, you start to understand that actually you're more than a coach. It's more than how they kick a ball or basketball, how they bounce a ball. But it's what you can offer them in terms of 
understanding what it's like to be part of a team, understanding what it's like to contribute to a team, how being part of a team actually is more rewarding than being, you know, it's all about me. And if I score six goals, it doesn't really matter whether we lose or not and so on and so forth. So being in that space, working with young people has been really, really important. You mentioned contributing to boards and that started for me out of curiosity. And I am naturally curious. I like to learn and I like to offer whatever I can to the environments in which I'm I'm in. So in broad terms, this is about trying to add something, bring something. We all have a uniqueness about us and do we offer that to help others and support others? Yeah, thank you for that. In all the organizations that you've been involved with, was creativity or arts or culture ever considered to be important or used as a tool for supporting people's health and well-being? I think it's fair to say that perhaps less in the housing part of my career, but certainly in the social care part of my career and on a very much a personal basis. And when you're supporting people who perhaps will have difficulty communicating in traditional ways, you have to find new and innovative ways to connect with people. So running the organization that I did that support people with learning disabilities and autism in particular, and to a degree mental health, we worked with a lot of therapists who would bring creativity, be that art, be that movement, be that music, into our residential care homes, be that for older people with dementia, which I, I've also worked in, but certainly with people who find it difficult to communicate because of their learning disability. And just seeing how people who perhaps have had their emotions locked inside them and haven't found ways to be able to express those emotions, certainly for people with very complex autism, they might express their emotions through behaviors that challenge. And I remember we supported someone who genuinely, in the long institution that he was in, required two people to support him, basically 24-7. Right. And it was viewed that he couldn't be supported in the community. We developed a reputation for supporting people that others could not. And we, we started working with this gentleman. And literally within six to nine months, we had to experiment. So we experimented with art. We experimented with movement and dance. And we experimented with music. But I recall the breakthrough coming with art. And it changed him. Yes, I think also being supported in a very different way, philosophically, played a part. But I remember seeing how he would just calm down and visibly relax when he was painting. Now, I'm, <laughs> I'm a huge music fan, and I have learned a bit about art over the years through my wife. But what he was painting wasn't particularly artistic in the traditional sense. But for him, colour, mixing, fundamentally changed everything about this young man. So to see how that can help and support, it takes time. 
You have to be patient. We had to experiment because, you know, he didn't say one day, you know, I'd really like to paint. He didn't say that. But the staff that we had were really patient, were prepared to experiment. So we've seen how that can help. We've seen how uh, music therapy can help people. So I'm a huge fan of the use of the creative arts, creativity, therapy, call it what you will, to work with all people, whether they old people with dementia, people with learned disabilities, or anybody else. Yes. Well, that is music to my ears. (laughs) (laughs) So you've used the word experimenting a number of times and you've used the word innovation. And I just want to pick up on that because I think that sometimes that can be quite challenging in a public sector context, particularly whereby you know, how we spend public money is heavily scrutinized and sometimes experimenting is seen as a bit too risky and therefore maybe, you know, we don't get the opportunity to find out those things that you've just described that you wouldn't ordinarily know unless you had tried. What's your thoughts on that? I think you're right. Um, i referred more than once to the organisation that I ran in London as support of people with learning disabilities and complex autism and mental health problems. And we recognise that our service offer cost more than the traditional because we wanted to invest more in our people, we wanted to invest more in trying things. And that takes time. And that takes bringing in people who have knowledge, experience, who are able to respond to what they see, what they hear, what they feel. And unfortunately, because there is pressure on public finance, sometimes it's very difficult for organizations who commission those services to fund the time that is needed, to fund the the knowledge and the expertise, because this is for memory, I would imagine the therapist that we worked with back then would have trained for many, many years to develop the knowledge, the skills, the competence, the experience, to be able to come into an environment and start working with uh, someone who they've perhaps never met before, but over a period of time, generally, I have to confess, months, because these things do take time, to get to a point where actually that individual has been supported to move to a very different place in their life. And the question is, is the return on that investment worthwhile? Our view was, my view is, it absolutely is, but it's very difficult. And given what I'm involved in today, I see how those tensions are played out and those challenges are played out in every conversation that I have. Yes, and I'm just going to come on to your new role. But before I do that, I think we need to recognise that it also takes great leadership as well. And it sounds to me like you have been that type of leader in those organisations who's willing to experiment, to innovate, to push boundaries and to stand up for what you believe in. And that isn't the case in all organisations. So I definitely think leadership is a part of that jigsaw. Yes, I mean, I I was very fortunate in my work career to have spent over 
almost 25 years at working at chief executive level and working with boards of trustees in most cases who collectively wanted us to lead that change. And I was really pleased to be given the support that was needed in terms of my discussions with the board. They understood we were taking risks at times and they were very supportive in terms of managing the outcome when things didn't go absolutely perfectly and supporting me as the chief executive. But I think, again, leadership essentially is another subject for a completely different podcast. But I think leadership starts with you as an individual and it starts with your journey. And I'm very conscious of where I've come from and uh, some of the experiences that I had and what it took for me to thrive in different stages of of my development and in my life. So bringing all of that together into an environment where you're able to articulate that, that vision and then to find that vision attracts people to want to work with you and to want to work for the organization because perhaps where they'd been working previously, they'd not been allowed to really push themselves and engage in different ways and live their values through their work. I think that's the biggest benefit you can have as a leader. It's not about you as a leader. It's about the tone you set that allow others to be themselves and be successful in what they do. Yes, absolutely. A great leader is somebody who nurtures and supports their team and wants to develop them as individuals and in their career. So let's get on to your current role because you are heading up, I'm going to say, you can tell me what your exact job title is, the Integrated Care System for Kent and Medway. So tell us what that means. So what is your job and what is the Integrated Care System? Can I start by politely challenging Correcting me. Correcting me, yes. (laughs) Um, I'm chair of the Integrated Care Board, which is part of the Integrated Care System in uh, Kent and uh, Medway. And it's interesting you describe it as a job because I don't. I've had the opportunity to sit on lots and lots of boards of different types of organizations and I've chaired organizations and NHS trusts and different things. So this role is as chair of uh, the Integrated Care Board in Kenton Medway, which I mentioned is part of an integrated care system. And I think what's really interesting as the NHS celebrates its 75th anniversary is this sense that the NHS cannot on its own deliver the health and well-being that the country needs. And if we go back just over a year with the introduction of the Health and Social Care Act, that effectively forces organisations who perhaps have not worked as closely together as they might have in service of local communities to work together. So in Kent and Medway, the integrated care system is led by the NHS and our two upper tier local authorities, Medway and Kent County Council. So between the three organisations, our role collectively is to uh, lead uh, the system. From the NHS perspective, we have a whole 
series of NHS trusts and acute trust, mental health trust, community trusts. So we've got to live up to our part of that deal, so to speak, by being the best NHS that we can be within Kent and Medway, the most effective and efficient and the safest NHS that we can be working collaboratively, working differently. But when you consider now, there's a recognition that 80% of our health and well-being effectively has nothing to do with NHS. Yeah. How do we work together to support people in that 80% space? So our health and well-being is really influenced by where we live, the quality of our housing, whether we are in permanent secure work, how much we earn, the relationship we have in our and with our communities, what we do in terms of our leisure. You mentioned creativity, you know, are we able to spend time in nature, for example, and so on and so forth. So at a system level, our challenge is now to work together in a very different way. I say that what we can't be is a truly integrated care system because there are different pots of money that we have, different sovereign organisations, so Kent County Council, Medway Council, they're sovereign organisations with their own governance, their own structures, their own financial challenges. So what I talk about is an interdependent care system. And that's really extending our conversations to include the voluntary sector, to include housing providers, because we have seen through the tragic death of Awab Ishak up in Rochdale, how living in a damp and mouldy flat for a number of years can affect tragically the health of a two-year-old boy. So there are conversations that are taking place in parallel. There are conversations taking place in the housing sector about what housing needs to do to make its contribution to the health and well-being of its tenants, customers, call them what you will. Similarly, education. They say that good health starts in schools. So our challenge is to come together, recognizing, unfortunately, there's never going to be enough money. But how can we work together in ways that really help local communities to be healthier, fitter and well? And ultimately, that will reduce pressure on the NHS. When you talk about it like that, it seems to make complete sense. So it begs the question, why are we only starting to work like this now? I think it's fair to say we have worked in this way in pockets at different times. Certainly working in neighbourhoods, for example, you may well find a housing association as what they describe as an anchor institution has been working in different ways with different partners, be they from the voluntary sector, be they from the NHS and so on. What the Health and Care Act has done is effectively brought it into statute. So there is now a legal requirement for us to work differently. That's not just where you have local leaders doing that. That's right the way through all our organisations. And we are going to be measured by how we do that. So we do have some tools in our toolbox. There are ways that we can jointly commission and jointly fund work. And we've done that in the past. This is not totally new. 
but there's now much more strategic requirement for us to do this. So I'm having new and different conversations with colleagues in local authorities, for example, in the voluntary sector. How can they help us? How can we help them do more for communities, many of whom, to be frank with you, uh, Laura, they don't really care about all this stuff and nonsense. You know, I spend hour upon hour in meetings and they have no interest in all of that. What they're interested in is their experience day in, day out. People tell me they are fed up having to tell different people the same story everywhere they go. We talk about pathways. You know, when someone comes into our system, how do they work through the system? How can you make that as seamless as possible until they get to a point where they no longer need NHS support or they no longer need social care support or whatever it may be? And people tell me they get really angry when they speak to the next person who has no idea what they said to the last person. So that this principle of working together is really, really important for us. And it will take some time. And isn't it also about trying to create the conditions so that less people have to be in a system, you know, that they can take better care of themselves in their everyday lives. They are looking after their own health and well-being by engaging in the things within their community, with their neighbours, with nature, with, you know, whatever, physical activity, eating, well, all of these things so that they don't have to end up in the system. Now, I know that there are real complications with that because there are major health inequalities and therefore not everybody has access to the same things. But that's where we want to move towards, isn't it? That you don't need to be in a health system because you are living well in your own life and in your own community. Absolutely. And, you know, I've I've said this many, many times. We can't keep spending more and more money on the NHS. What we've got to try and do, and it will take some time to get there, is reduce people's reliance on the NHS. We're all living longer, and many of us are living with what we describe as lifelong, life-limiting conditions. We've seen a significant increase in type 2 diabetes, for example. We've seen a significant increase in obesity. And working with our public health colleagues in our local authorities, we're really understanding the implications, long-term implications of that. There are many people now who are on, you know, three, four, five medication a day, for example. And they tell me that, you know, they don't want to take all these tablets. They want a better quality of life. But for many people, that's quite hard to achieve on their own. And this is where you talk about the role of community, for example, and how people can support each other and work together. And whether it is just coming together in a coffee morning, for example. And we've seen one of the biggest challenges we have as a country is the challenge of mental health. And interestingly, how we have seen over the last few years an explosion, a positive explosion in men's clubs. You know, research tells us men find it very difficult to talk about their mental health. But when you get a, you know, lads in sheds or whatever the expression is, just talking about their life, 
their challenges, that can really help. Um, just sharing experiences, being able to open up and just have people listen with what I call listening with a quiet mind. Mm. So really just listening to people and giving people the space to to speak their truth. And that can have, a, over time, a really positive impact on people's mental health, on their self-esteem, and, and so on and so forth. So there are things that we are extremely keen to do as a system. And it's not a case of everything falling at the door of the NHS, but it's how can we maximize the limited resources we have across the system. You know, we have 6,000 different types of voluntary organizations across Kent and Medway, all doing great work with young people, older people, people with disabilities, for example, fundraising from, you know, local fundraising efforts to securing national lottery funding to, to do great work in the community. We all play a part. And that's our challenge. It's a challenge that I used to describe as uh, three-dimensional chess. People may recall that famous Star Trek scene with uh, Spock and McCoy playing three-dimensional chess. Or was it Kirk? I can't remember. Um, I now describe our challenge more like a Rubik's Cube, actually. Right. Gosh, yeah. You know, okay. I think, <laughs> I've never met anyone that was able to do that. But, you know, it's that sense of trying to bring everything together to create the whole yeah and this leads us nicely on then to talk about the role of creativity arts and culture in all of this and you'll be aware that there's lots of work going on nationally locally and internationally about this because we've chatted about this before and we know that arts and culture is really beneficial to people's health and well-being both at a preventative level and for some very specific health conditions. And I've read part of a study recently that came out from UCL and the World Health Organization in which they reviewed over 3,000 pieces of literature, studies, grey literature, etc., which identifies that there is a major role for the arts to play in the prevention of ill health and the promotion of health and the management and treatment of illness across the lifespan. So we know those things. So how do we share that kind of information with the right people, the decision makers, the purse holders, so that creativity and arts can become more widely available to people and more widely understood as being beneficial? It's a huge challenge. And, you know, I thank people like you and others, Laura, for really continuing to raise the issue, raise the consciousness of people like me and others about the importance of the arts and creativity in people's lives and how over time, and I think this is the real challenge. So unfortunately, we are all faced with today's challenges. We're very conscious in this post-pandemic world that from an NHS perspective, for example, there's a huge backlog in terms of screening, elective care, and so on and so forth. And we've got to catch up with that work. And unfortunately, our challenge is managing that in the short term. But strategically, we have to find a way, in addition to delivering 
what I call the short-term must-dos, to start thinking about and investing in some of the longer-term areas of work that will, over time, reduce pressure on the NHS at its front door. I'm not as well-read in this space as you are, but I know how, for example, arts and creativity can, over time, reduce hypertension, for example, as part of a a lifestyle change, of course. But if you add it into other changes that you make in your life, you can have a really positive effect. And I think this is where there is a, a shared leadership challenge here. So there's a leadership that people like you carry of constantly raising the issue, challenging people like me, and there are many people you know, like me in positions that I hold right across the country, to try and find that balance of short, medium, and long-term. Because I don't think, I could be wrong, that by establishing a strategy that includes the arts and creativity, it's going to deliver us overnight improvements. No. But when you think about the fact that the NHS has been around for 75 years, and we sincerely hope the NHS is here in another 75 years, then over time, as we go through each generation, we will find people who need NHS and other services less and less. That has to be our objective, because certainly it's going to be very difficult for the NHS to keep working at this pace, this level of intensity, you know, long into the future. Very difficult to see how that can be maintained. So we've got to be challenging and be challenged into how we break that. It's not easy because I go to meeting after meeting with our other board members, with our chief executive, Paul Bentley, his executive team, and people I speak to. They are challenged by what we have to get through today and this year. And as an integrated care board, we do have a long-term plan. And it's broken down into what we think we can achieve this year, next year, into the future. But that's a moving feast, moving target, so to speak. So we have to keep working through this. And it is the challenge of leadership. It has to be because as leaders, our responsibility is to bring things onto our collective agendas. I say one of the biggest challenges we have in NHS Kenton Medway is how do we move the money around? How do we perhaps invest less in one area and more in another area over time? It could be three to five years, but ultimately that's what we've got to try and do. We've got to start, if we possibly can, investing more at the front end to take the pressure off later in the pathway, later in our system. Desmond Tutu's famous quote is, we have to stop pulling people out of the river. We have to go upstream to find out why they're falling in. Yes, absolutely. It's a really good analogy. I want to challenge you then, since we're talking about challenge, on what you can do in your role in Kenton Medway and what others can do so that there is a creative health 
offer as part of your work. I know we've already had a discussion about strategy and I'm hoping that that does happen because although strategy alone isn't going to solve everything, I think it needs to be there at, at that level. But what else can we do in order that the local creative sector in Kent and Medway can contribute towards the public health agenda? I think the first thing we we need to do is raise our own awareness. And I think these conversations play a major part in that. As chair, I don't do anything. Thousands of colleagues right across Kent and Medway who day in, day out do the most amazing job. I think a big part of my role is to ask questions, is to challenge colleagues and to engage the support of our board. So we ask ourselves the why not question and how are we going to questions. And I think that's where we start the conversation. We also have to create an environment that gives people permission. So within our health system, I describe it as an ecosystem. So different parts of the system all doing different things at the same time and coming together as a whole to make things better. So how do we give other people permission to experiment at a local level? How does one of our, we have have four place-based service offers, which we call health and care partnerships. How do we encourage the people working in our health and care partnerships to do things differently, closer to where people are as well? There's one thing having conversations around the board table. And part of those conversations are about empowering others to do things differently. So it's not just, as you rightly say, the strategic discussions. It's those discussions that take place with communities. How can our health and care partnerships work with district councils, for example, work with voluntary sector organizations close to where people live to try things that may not necessarily cost lots of money, but just require some time and some thought and working together in a different way? And because that's where a lot of the knowledge sits as well, isn't it? In communities, in the voluntary sector, at a grassroots level where the work is happening and the direct engagement with people is happening. It is. When I first took this role on, someone said to me, you really need to go and speak to this guy called Eli, who runs an organisation in Margate. And it's based around his restaurant and music venue and Eli's working with young people in and around Margate which is you might argue quite a disadvantaged area in part not in whole but young people and they're using creativity in his basement he has an amazing studio set up music a tv studio And young people are attracted to go and spend time there, creating their own music, producing their own podcasts. They're able to broadcast worldwide from a basement in Margate. I love it. And he's working with young people, many of whom perhaps have had difficult lives, and they're finding their voice. They are supporting each other. And Eli is a catalyst for that. He doesn't tell these young people what to do. What he's done is provide the space to allow 
these young people to bring all of their experience into that space and create and share and support each other in that peer-to-peer way. I spent more than one afternoon with Eel. I spent some evenings there as well. Just being in the space of one of the most charismatic people I've ever met in my life. Amazing. With his energy, with his drive. And every couple of months, we have a board meeting. And at the start of the each board meeting, we have a contribution from the community, be that community organization or a network or a group. I think from memory, the first group who came to present to our board was Eli and his colleagues, because I really wanted the board to hear at first hand the work he was doing at uh, Olbiz. So they created a, a social enterprise and they received some funding from the NHS, some funding from Kent County Council, but not a lot. And he invests some of his own business into this service and he's doing an amazing job. When I said to him, it'd be great, Eli, if you could do this elsewhere in Kent. He said, I don't want to. This is where I am. This is my community. I've been here for 20 odd years. I've had some ups and downs, but we're still here. We survived COVID. And from my point of view, I don't really want to try to replicate this in Ashford or in Canterbury or on the Isle of Sheppey or wherever. So I took that away to think, you know what? He's absolutely right. He is in that place where he is working with people of all ages, but a lot of young people, evidencing what I describe as trusted people in trusted places. So he had worked really hard to establish trusting relationships with his local community, and they were comfortable in that space. Mm. And he's part of that community, isn't he? And that makes a huge difference, I think, if he went and tried to kind of drop that in somewhere else without having built those relationships, it wouldn't have the same impact. So we need more Eli's. We do. We need more people who want to give back, you know, like we were talking about right at the beginning in how you started your career. And I guess it's also something about how are we raising children and teaching adults even that giving back is a really positive thing and starting a social enterprise rather than a fully commercial enterprise, you know, or how do we get other businesses to think more like that? What we're trying to do in Kent and Medway is start a movement. Now, when you think about what a movement is and and what it has been in history, whether it is the civil rights movement, whether it is the suffrage movement, or more recently, the Black Lives Matter movement, this is about people from all backgrounds committing to delivering a common goal, a common outcome. So what we did last year in Kenton Medway is that we brought 150 leaders from right across Kenton Medway, across every sector, from the police to local authority, the voluntary sector, district councils, the NHS, all sorts of people together to start talking about this. How do we work together differently? The police and the emergency services, of course, have a role to play. We know that. 
the voluntary sector have a major role to play. We know that. But how do we listen to each other differently? How do we work together differently? And we talked about together we can. And you'll see that dotted around and different things. And it is that sense of optimism. You know, I describe myself as a naive optimist because I really do believe together we can. But it will take time. Please give us time to move this forward. It will take longer than we think. There'll be many setbacks. One of the things we have to develop is resilience. Clearly, and we've seen the challenges faced by our local authority colleagues in terms of their finances, for example. We've seen voluntary sector organizations who are struggling financially. The NHS is strapped for cash. We get all of that. So, but we've got to be resilient and we've got to say, okay, we have less money, but how do we use what we've got differently? You know, they always say real creativity starts when the money runs out. Mm. You know, so how can we work creatively together? And I guess it comes back to the work that you do to say, actually, we can make a contribution. Don't forget the benefit of creativity, of the arts. Remember how you felt listening to music you know i'm a huge music fan i've learned over the years that the impact music has on me on my mental health on my well-being let's not forget that if we are going to do this together there needs to be a space for us all to contribute yes i think you need to create those spaces for different types of organizations to come together and to facilitate those conversations because partnerships don't come easily necessarily and they do need a little bit of work and encouragement you know to get people to a point of understanding how they could work better together but I want to come on to the music conversation Mm. about you Vesni because you mentioned it a few times and I'm a huge music fan too I'd love it if you could tell us about how music or any other creative pursuits you've done have benefited you personally over the years. Tell us about that. Um, and what kind of music you like listening to. <laughs> okay, okay. So I guess it goes back to where this story started, Laura. When my parents came to England in 1955, They had to give up, voluntarily to a degree, much of their own culture, much of their own background. My father said to me that, that, you know, he arrived with a suitcase full of shirts that he would never wear in England. But in the warm Caribbean, of course, you know, bright colours and so on and so forth, that's what people wore. So they gave up a lot of themselves in their effort to make a contribution. They wanted to fit in and they passed that down to their three children, of which I'm one. But the thing that allowed them to hold on to their past, their history, was music. So we get together as a family, sometimes the extended family, so aunts, uncles, cousins on a Sunday, and we play music. In those days, it was Calypso, um, and that really reminded people of home. And for people like me who were born here, that was a connection to a world that I didn't know. And that was really, really helpful for me over time. 
because it helped me understand my journey. It helped me shape my identity. So gradually, my father's taste and through him, me, I guess, really started engaging with jazz. Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, uh, Ray Charles, Art Blakey, my dad used to love. And that was really important. And we really engaged in that. And through that route, I started experimenting. I started learning the piano, got up to grade five in terms of getting through the different exam stages. I played the trumpet for a while and I played the trombone for a while because I really wanted to do more than just listen to music. Unfortunately, for a whole variety of reasons, one at a time, they all kind of fell away. I also used to sing. Again, I had a pretty good voice and part of the choir at our church and then through our school. And then there was a, the London choir and sang as part of the choir at the Royal Albert Hall, the Royal Festival Hall. And you know, just absolutely loved singing and how singing made me feel. You can't explain what it's like to sing as part of a choir. Yeah, totally. You cannot explain that. So as I grew up and got older, I wanted to find my own musical identity, so to speak. And like a lot of people, young black people at that time, I discovered soul music and disco and jazz, funk and so on and so forth. And that's what I've really held on to. But over time, I have developed a slightly wider musical taste. I remember stumbling across the film Amadeus. And before stumbling on that film, late night, channel surfing, I had no idea really about classical music. That wasn't for us, that was for other people. But then we just watched the film, fell in love with the music. So now I've got more of a mixed taste. I do listen to some classical music and I'm embarrassed to say that on one occasion, I was on the M2 and I missed my junction. I think we've all done that. <laughs> I was so enraptured at the music I was listening to. I think it might have been Vivaldi or something like that. And then I mentioned my wife and her love of art, for example, and the fact that she dragged me to galleries and, you know, and so on and so forth. So for me, music is everything. And I'm very fortunate in that I'm able to go to different sorts of live gigs and concerts and, and so on. But it is about being accessible, it's about making sure that what we have, we offer is accessible. And we can do that in communities, we can do that in schools. And it's a shame that sometimes it's very difficult to fit it all in into people's lives, but people should be encouraged if they possibly can to explore. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the accessibility issue is huge and we can't get away from that. But if we can encourage people to, I guess, if to get back to being a little bit childlike in terms of, you know, just freeing themselves to put a record on and dance around the kitchen and sing their heart out in their car, it's not going to solve everything. But it certainly makes you feel good for that moment, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. And you don't have to be a talented singer and it is interesting there was a genre of tv program a few years ago where they'd bring pe ordinary people together to form a choir for example and tv cameras would follow their journey and, and so on and so forth 
and you could see how people engage differently in that space. And that's where local leadership can play a part. I remember when I was chief executive of uh, an organization based in Kent, I tried to encourage our staff to form a choir. It didn't really take off for a whole variety of reasons, but at least we tried. At least we tried to bring people together, recognizing that bringing people together in a space and then encouraging people to sing together can really benefit them in terms of their mental health, reduce stress and so on. Sedi, thank you so much. It's been a joy to talk to you. I really appreciate your honesty and for sharing your story professionally and personally. And I really appreciate your passion and your dedication. And I really think that a lot of people are going to find you really inspiring. So thank you. Laura, can I thank you for the opportunity just to share a bit of my background and my thoughts and and so on. And what you've done and what you continue to do, I think is extraordinarily valuable. And I would ask you to keep speaking your truth, keep knocking on doors, keep challenging. Our responsibility is to listen first and foremost, and then to act on what we hear. So thank you. And I hope people find it interesting. I'm sure they will. You're so welcome. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please rate, review and subscribe. Follow the show on Instagram at Creative Health Pod and via the website creative-health.co.uk. This episode was edited by Penny Bell. Creative Health Podcast has been supported through Kent County Council's Arts Investment Fund. Music